Casey Cardinia Libraries would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which this podcast was recorded. We wish to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening. Hi everyone and welcome to Season 2 of Book Matters, a place where we chat to people who write books or read books. We chat to a range of Australian and international authors, as well as giving you some great reading recommendations from our staff here at Casey Cardinia Libraries. So sit back, relax, and you may just discover your next great read. In this episode, we have a great lineup for you, with Sam chatting to Australian author Tabitha Bird about her latest novel, The Emporium of Imagination, a captivating novel of magical realism about a fantastical shop that brings comfort, peace and hope to those in need. Today we have a very special bonus interview with best-selling UK author Paige Toon, whose books have sold over 1.5 million copies worldwide. Michaela talks to Paige about her heart-melting new contemporary romance novel, Someone I Used to Know. And of course, we have some great reading recommendations from our staff here at Casey Cardinia Libraries. We hope you enjoy. Bird is a writer and poet who lives and works in the rural township of Boonar, Queensland. By day, Tabitha may be found painting, working on her next book or with her husband, three beautiful boys and Chihuahua. Her first novel, A Lifetime of Impossible Days, won the 2020 Courier Mail's People's Choice Queensland Book of the Year Award. Today, we get to chat with her about her new magical novel, The Emporium of Imagination. Welcome to Book Matters, Tabitha. Thanks so much for having me, Sam. It's uh, such an exciting time to be here with you talking about this new book, baby. It is very exciting. And I was I was so excited to get to submerge myself in this magical realism novel, which is my favourite genre, and you don't actually see that much in new novels. You really so, don't. <laughs> no. There was such a surge of it in the 90s, and then it just sort of petered off, didn't mm. it? Yeah, I, I, it did. Actually, I came to magical realism quite by accident. But, yeah, you're quite right, especially in Australia. It's not... Um, it's not a hugely known genre. I, I actually was thinking, should we explain what that is? Do you oh, mind summarising what sort of genre it is? Yeah. yeah, that's a great idea. So this is how I describe magical realism. Magical realism sits right in the middle of contemporary fiction and fantasy. It is neither. In fantasy, we, are, we go into a whole new world. There's a portal or a door or some way in which we travel into this whole new world that the reader has created. So that's fantasy. But in magical realism, we stay rooted to reality and the story is set in the world in which we all know and cohabitate. Um, But in magical realism, the twist is that there's this otherworldly something that happens or an otherworldly type twist that happens in the story. So even though the story is set in reality, there is just this little twist of something that couldn't actually happen in reality. So it just sits right in the middle of those two genres and opens its arms in either direction. (laughs) Perfect description. Thank you. And um, for for those who don't know, could you start off by telling our listeners what this novel is about? Absolutely. So The Emporium of Imagination is actually about a fantastical store that arrives in Boona in the very early hours of the morning. And the store actually arrives, it's not built like ordinary stores it actually puts itself together and the emporium of imagination not only has a magical way of arriving in town but it offers gorgeous vintage wares that will connect the buyer 
to someone or something that they have lost and are grieving for. It also sells the most absolutely extraordinary phones, which give you one last opportunity to have a conversation with a loved one that you've lost. So that's the basic premise or setup of the magic in the story. And then, of course, we follow three characters. There's Erlitage Hubert Umbre, who is the custodian of the store. And he arrives in town to do his custodial duties, which include finding the new shopkeeper and inviting people to come to the store. And then there's Enoch, and he is 10 years old. And Enoch is this gorgeous, big-hearted, quirky boy who has also lost his dad just recently. And he feels very personally responsible for that loss. And then there's Anne, who is in her middle age and Anne also is harboring some big secrets and feels very personally responsible for the death of Enoch's dad but she's not talking about why or how and these three characters their lives are quite intertwined so that's that's the basic setup that's terrific in this novel you you choose to match the complexities of adult challenges and loss with the childlike magic of the Emporium. Do you think adults need magic as much as kids do? I think adults even need it more. I think uh, children are just very open to the whole fantastical world and to looking for magic and and finding it. Um, But I think adults, often as we were growing up as children, it was kind of beaten out of us or we were told to do you know awful things like grow up and be sensible and Mm. we lose that sense of fun and perhaps even the value that we place on our imaginations and a lot of people feel that their imaginations are really not that important or that they're not very imaginative but in fact that's really untrue every time that we imagine for ourselves a better future or we have plans or goals for something that we want that's using our imagination every time we're at work or at home and we problem solve that's using our imagination so really we use our imaginations all the time and I think all of us especially in this day and age can use some hope and some joy and the power that our imaginations bring speaking of imagination it seemed like you had given your imagination absolute permission to run wild with the (laughs) descriptions of the emporium and all its contents what inspired your vision of the emporium yeah I certainly did give my imagination free reign um so what inspired my vision of the emporium were a couple of things. One, I actually invited my readership on social media to join me in the creation of some of the Emporium. So they came up with the colour of the door. And then I decided that not only would the front door be green, but it would be a multi-sensory experience when you came close to the Emporium. So you can smell the colour green and you can taste the colour green. And as you walk into the store, there's this gorgeous wavy grass for carpet and these beautiful little ladybugs that flitter all around the place. And it's like an invitation to the adults in the townships or the cities where the store visits to come and to let go, but also to see how their imaginations might be able to heal them so really it was things from my own sort of mind I guess that made me feel happy that I put inside the Emporium and um, wanted to share with everyone. That's so interesting that you collaborated with the public. I do. What made you you decide to do that? Because readers want to be involved. I've actually I've been on social media for quite quite, for a little while now a few years now and um, it's really amazed me how much, you know, readers really want to have a little input. You know, they want to be a part of the creation of story. They themselves love story and love books and they have imaginations as big as mine once I give them permission to open up and share. And there was even a 
pussycat that joins the Emporium of Imagination and we needed a name for the pussycat and I threw that out to my readers. What should we call this cat that has arrived? And they were the ones that actually came up with the name Pickled Onions. So one of them had a cat called Pickled Onions and then another of my readers actually had a cat that brought her gorgeous little gifts, just things that the cat collected from around her home and dropped it in front of her and if this person didn't give you know appropriate ooing and ahhing over these gifts the cat was quite upset so hence pickled onions was born in my book and we have a cat that actually delivers beautiful things from the emporium inside the book so I just think readers want to be involved and I want I want them to be involved it's like the um it's like your social media profile was the first emporium then really (laughs) yeah it kind of was and I decided when I started social media that I was going to be real and it was going to be me um, and that I was going to show up you know in just all my quirks and (laughs) and uniqueness and and other people have been quite happy to join me in that (laughs) in your acknowledgement you explain that during the writing of this book was the diagnosis and loss of your own nanny yeah and that this novel was your way of speaking to her, how much of the story was shaped and born from your own grief? Yeah, so the story actually began um, before my nanny was diagnosed with cancer, but it wasn't very long after that that she got the diagnosis. And, of course, we found out that it was going to be terminal. And she was 84 years old, you know, and the doctors kept saying to us, she's lived, you know, a long life and that's that's the expectancy of life for women in in this day and age. Now, I was absolutely offended. I was like, it's my nanny. You don't understand. Nannies (laughs) don't get sick and die. Well, of course they do. But it was just such a shock to my system. And so as I began writing the book, my own journey with grief began to be mirrored by my character's journey. So I gave them a lot of the things that I was going through and just the complexities of grief, you know, it's not this black and white thing. It's many, many colours and many textures. And I also, you know, as my grandmother was dying, I felt guilty a lot of times because I did, I wanted to hold on to her forever as we do with people that we love. But also I really wanted her to go and I felt bad about that. The reason I wanted her to go was I didn't want her to suffer anymore but I also wanted an end to my own pain of watching her suffer. And that's just such a basic human need, you know, to want the end of our own pain. And I began to think there's really no need to feel guilty about that. And I wonder how many of us really don't share what we're thinking when we're grieving and how alone we feel. So I threw that all into the book and started talking about some of those taboos that we just, you know, aren't very good at talking about in Western culture. I I agree. And it, it was interesting, though, because you also pulled in, like, there's the grief of the loss of a person, but you were also acknowledging the grief of the loss of unlived lives mm. or hopes and potential that, and and exploring the whole nature of sorrow. Was, yeah. was this a big thing you wanted to explore? Yeah, absolutely. Because grief is really anything that we have loved or cared about that we have lost so when you open the description up that wide it really becomes anything you know so it can even be you know I watched my grandmother as she was getting older and just her grief over the loss of things her body was no longer able to do you know she loved to dance and she did tap dancing even in her 60s and there came a time of course which she couldn't do that anymore and there was a grief in that for her so we grieve you know we grieve many things even that chance we didn't take or perhaps a decision that we made or something we said or something we didn't say, 
we can grieve anything. If you've cared about it and you've lost it, you can grieve it. So yeah, I did want to open that up. And I think it was also the link between people's grief, Mm. you know, that they weren't singular, that especially the book of grieving. Yeah, the bone is coming to circulated. It's that sense Mm. that, yeah, that it is a community, you know, that it is something we do together. Absolutely. That it is something we can do together, you know. I think um, after the loss of my grandmother, I witnessed, you know, obviously that was during COVID, so there wasn't an actual funeral. We just had a, a viewing and only 10 people were allowed there. Once that was over and, you know, once the flowers had died and, you know, people stopped bringing around meals, it's usually only two weeks or three weeks after someone's actually passed. And then there's really nothing. You know, people don't want to talk about it for fear of perhaps saying the wrong thing or perhaps yeah. bringing up that grief for you and they don't want to make you sad. And whilst, you know, those might be admirable things in one sense in another sense it just leaves the person who's lost alone you know it leaves them with that message of either there's no one around that you know sort of wants to listen or can listen or just that it's not okay to talk about it anymore you know no one else is talking about it and so sort of gives them that unconscious or or, you know unintended sometimes message that it's not okay to talk about their grief and they should just really move on which of course is just so harmful and then just leaves us very alone in our grieving and we don't have to be alone in our grieving all of us have lost whether it's a person or something we've all experienced grief and we don't have to have a degree in psychology in order to be a friend we can just simply sit beside somebody and say hey I'm here I'm listening if you want to talk about it I'd be more than happy to hear because mm-hmm. people are aching to talk about it and they don't want to be alone. So I wanted to explore that as well. You indicated that you link writing to healing mm. and finding your way home. Could you speak into that for us? Yeah, absolutely. I think writing and story is actually really powerful in finding our way home. And, and for me personally as a writer, both my books, both The Emporium of Imagination and my first one, A Lifetime Impossible Days, have been a way in which I've understood the way I think and feel about something. And seeing it on the page has helped me to understand my own processes and has helped me to have more grace and acceptance for myself, which is something I think we all sort of need. Mm. Um, and so putting that out there into the world is almost an invitation or a you know unconscious permission for other people to do the same, you know, to take my stories and to see how it connects with theirs and then to use that however they wish, you know, to journey into my Emporium of Imagination and perhaps for the first time have permission to talk about their own grief to other people in their lives or however that is powerful or meaningful for them. So I think writing is just this super powerful tool for authors and for anybody really. You don't even have to be a writer in order to write. I mean, just journaling down what you think and feel Mm. Will be so powerful. So yeah, that's yeah. that's how I've approached it. Could you tell us about your writing journey to publication? Yeah, my writing journey to publication was a bit windy. <laughs> um, <laughs> probably most people's are. I didn't actually realise that I wanted to have a book published. I started writing actually as a way to process trauma. I'd entered counselling to deal with some past childhood trauma, and at the time, my counsellor actually asked me a very interesting question. She said can you tell me what the pain looks like? And I was really intrigued by this question because obviously she wasn't talking about, um, you know, just tell me everything that hurts. She wanted to know if I could picture pain, what would it look like and how could I describe that to her? Mm. I went away and thought about that and I came up with a character called Beast 
who was my pain and he was a a dragon-like character. And I just began writing about this world that lived within my heart and Beast and the little girl that were in that world and, and what was happening to them and what it looked like. And at the end of all of that, I had it sort of had a, a very messy manuscript of about 120,000 words. And bless my counsellor, she read it all. And, um, oh, you know, she's good on her. Yeah, over the course of a long time, I didn't put it together in a night or anything. It was over many yeah, months. Yeah. But um, she said to me, you know, you can write. And I said, no, I'm, I'm just doing this thing where I'm processing my grief. And she said, yes, I understand that. She said, but you're actually good at this. You can actually write. And she was the first person to really call out writing out of me and, and put it in front of me and say, you're good at this. Do you want to do this? And I realized I did actually want to do this. And so I began what was a very early draft of A Lifetime of Impossible Days, which then morphed into complete fiction. I used a lot of my own emotional truth or things that were true for me emotionally and put them in the story, but it is a complete work of fiction. And at the end of that sort of period of time, you know, when you've polished the book a million times and you've sent it off to readers and you've got it as good as you can get it, you begin this long process called sending it out to agents And um, while I was doing that, I hooked up with an academy called the Manuscript Academy in the US, and they offered me an opportunity to have a 10-minute conversation with a new editor that they just had come online. And that editor was actually Kimberly Atkins from Penguin Random House. And I Googled Kimberly, and she was acquiring rural romance, which was not what I was writing, but I thought it was just a good opportunity to get some feedback. Uh, But Kimberly didn't just give feedback. Kimberly fell in love with A Lifetime of Impossible Days and Kimberly actually took it to acquisitions and from there we had an offer and the rest is history. We have a published oh. book. So that was the beginning of the story. <laughs> and uh, I ne- Yeah, I never saw myself as an actual author. I like telling stories but I never saw myself as an author. <laughs> you have to slightly change that now. I do are, you now. <laughs> are you working on another novel now? I am actually working on a third manuscript at the moment and it's going to be the same genre so it'll be literary fiction with magical realism um, yep. and it's in its very early days at the moment but we have a very young character called Wanda so if you imagine if Wanda was actually a person what she would or he but I've decided she's a she uh, would look like and what adults in her life what their reaction would be to this and so there's two adult characters in the book that see no need for wonder in their lives at all and um, it's the interplay between three characters again in my story so yeah that's the beginning of it but we haven't we haven't fleshed it all out yet (laughs) well we're all in anticipation obviously (laughs) for that Um, do you have any advice for aspiring authors I do I think my biggest advice for aspiring authors is to not get too caught up in the right way to do things. It almost crippled my process because lots of the books that I was reading about writing said, you know, that it was very wise to plot your story and to plot out your characters and where they, their, their character arc and how they would develop and how the story would develop. And whilst I don't think there's anything wrong with that, for many of us that is not the way in which we put together story. And for me, I just couldn't write like that. Every time I sat down and tried to do that, the imagination of my creativity just packed up its bags and so did the characters in my head and just went, well, that just sounds like a grade 12 assignment and we don't want to do that. 
Um, so in order to keep the creativity process fun and that bubble joyful, I had to just write as it came out of me. I needed to be the first reader of my work and I needed to discover the story along with my characters. And that's still how I create story. I still to this day don't plot. So if you're a new writer out there and you've read this lovely advice but it's not working for you, my advice is to do whatever works for you. There is no right or wrong way to create. Just begin and then just write. Those first drafts always look miserable. Doesn't matter what kind of writer you are. Even right up to the very very well established Candace Fox. My publisher is actually uh, also her publisher. And I even know that, you know, first drafts for her are not a breeze. So everybody yeah. struggles with those first drafts. Um, so just get them written because you cannot, you can't make sandcastles if you haven't shoveled sand. So, you know, <laughs> go shovel that sand, make a big pile, and then you can turn it into a beautiful sandcastle. <laughs> That's excellent advice. And are, um, are you a big reader? I'm a what are you, huge reader. Yeah. What are you currently reading? I'm currently reading about three things, three or four yep. things at the moment. There's one that I'm reading that I'm really so enthused with that I don't actually want it to end. It's uh, not an Australian story, unfortunately. It's called The Lost Apothecary by Sarah Penner, and I'm just loving it. I'm only, I've only got about 20 minutes of listening time on Audible, but I just don't want it to end. So, Oh, I love that. <laughs> I'm reading that one at the moment. Uh, and then, of course, I'll read anything that has magical realism in it. So I'll read anything by Alexi Harrow and her, you know, 10,000 Doors of January and her new one, The Once and Future Witches. But anything, uh, Trent Dalton, his new manuscript, All Our Shimmering Skies, is magical yep. realism so I'm into that anything really but that that has you know that sort of otherworldly twist about it but then I also yeah. love middle grade fiction so I'm a huge fan of Karen Foxley and Lenny's book of everything which was delightful there's not a great deal that I won't pick up if it twigs my fancy <laughs> <laughs> and for our um final question yeah. at one point one of your characters suggests that we find other dreams as we get older so I wanted to ask you what dream do you expect to find as you age yeah look I'm really open to anything I think one of the ones that I've just recently discovered is my love of art and I've always loved art but it wasn't something in my family that was overly encouraged Um, my mother was the artist and it was sort of known that she was the one creating creating art and it wasn't a sort of shared thing so I sort of squashed my love of art but I love it and, you know, I've discovered I'm, I'm, I am good at it and I would like to pursue it. So I'm actually hoping that my future dreams will be around art and illustration and perhaps children's picture books at some point. But I'm open to anything. I, I would love to think that in my 60s I might find something that I'm absolutely obsessed about and off I go. So I'm open. <laughs> So the dreams can just come now? You know, I think they really can. And I think, you know, a lot of people have said to me, oh, I, you know, my readers will message me and go, oh, I'm too old, you know, I'm I'm 60 or I'm 70. And I think, you know what, if you're alive and your heart is beating then you, and you love something or you're into something, it's never too late. And yeah. so many people find the thing that they're passionate about much, much later in life. And I like to think that dreams find us at the right time. So even mm. if that's your 60s, that might be the perfect time for you. You know, mm. dreams I agree. come when we're ready for them to come. And there is no age limit on that. Modern culture likes to think we should all find what we want to do by the time we're 18 and then be passionately doing it by the time we're 20 and 30. But 
that's just not the case for many, many people. Even many authors didn't have first books out until their 50s and 60s. So That's right. I've got a list of them on my free Yes, list. I'm into that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Tabitha, for talking with us today. Yeah, my absolute pleasure for coming on and talking about the Emporium of Imagination. And for anyone out there, if you want to follow me on social media, please do. Google me. I'm at Bird Tabitha on Instagram and Tabitha Ann Bird author on Facebook. And I'd love to see you there because I do invite you to be a part of the creative process. Yes, they can contribute to the next one. They level. can. <laughs> <laughs> The Emporium of Imagination is available um, to order in hard copy from the library catalogue, so place your hold today. The Girl with a Louding Voice by Abby Dare. I love this book. This is a debut novel for this young writer and it follows the story of a young Nigerian girl called Adani and her search to have a louding voice. A louding voice seems to be one that is an educated, determined voice. Adani realises from a young age and from the determination of her mother that an educated girl will be an independent, determined girl. When her mother dies and she is sold off as a child bride by her traditional father, Adani's search for herself and her struggle for freedom and education begins. The book follows Adani's journey from yielding daughter, subservient child bride and powerless servant. As she turns enemies into friends and superiors into aides, Adani will take you with her on a heartbreaking but inspiring journey from a small village to the wealthy enclaves of Lagos and show you that no matter the situation, there is always some joy to be found. Despite Adani's situation going from bad to worse, she has a plan to escape. She will find her louding voice and get her education so that she can speak up for herself and all the girls who came before her. This book is in the first person and written in Adani's broken, uneducated English, which gives it a beautiful naivety that is often heartfelt and funny. Despite the very grim circumstances Adani endures, the, bo- the book made me both cry and smile. Adani will not be silenced. I really recommend this book and it's available in hard copy and large print. Hi everybody, it's Jenny from Bunjil Place Library. I'm here today to review a book called Letters to the Lost by Iona Gray. This book centres around a love story between Stella Thorne and Dan Rosinski. They meet by chance and fall in love by accident. Theirs is a reluctant, unstoppable affair in which all the odds are stacked against them. 70 years later, Dan makes one final attempt to find the girl he's never forgotten and he sends a letter to the house where they shared a brief yet perfect happiness. Stella has gone, however, and the letter is opened by a young girl called Jess. As Jess reads Dan's words, she's captivated by the story of a love affair that burns so bright. Can she help Dan find Stella before it's all too late? It's an epic story of love and loss and it will break your heart. So be prepared, have the tissues handy. I read this in normal print version from the library, but it's also available in large print and audiobook form. So give that one a go, all you romantics out there. Enjoy. Hi, this is Courtney from Mendeville Hills Library and I have been reading The Girl Remains by Catherine Firkin. 
Catherine Firkin is a local Melbourne writer. She's a journalist and is now a published author. She published her debut novel, Sticks and Stones, last year. Um, and if you haven't read that one, please give it a go. It was amazing, as is the second one. They are connected, but you don't necessarily have to have read the first one to follow the story in the second one. So in The Girl Remains, it's a murder mystery. So 20 years ago, a 15-year-old girl disappeared. And now 20 years later, her bones have turned up. And so thus begins the investigation into who murdered her and why. In both her first book, which is Sticks and Stones, and in this one, you um, alternate between multiple points of view. Um, and some characters are tied to the case and some characters, their connection to the case isn't so obvious. So it's a really good one because it gets your brain ticking over, trying to work out and pull all the threads together. She does throw in these um, little clues that if you're savvy enough, you pick up and you might be able to work out who the killer is and who all these characters are and what they have to do with the murder. So it's an amazing book, highly recommend it. And yeah, so that's The Girl Remains. Um, you can find that in our collection. It is going to be a top title for June. And if you're after her first book, Sticks and Stones, you can also find that one in the catalogue and you can borrow it as an ebook through Libby and you can borrow it as an ebook and an e-audiobook from BorrowBox. Thanks everyone. Happy reading. Paige Toon grew up between England, Australia and America thanks to her much-travelled Le Mans winning father's career. This meant that she grew up all over the world. Paige worked at Heat Magazine for eight years as a reviews editor before leaving to start a family. Paige has been writing books set in sun-drenched locations around the world since 2007. She has written 14 women's fiction novels, a three-part spin-off series for young adults and a collection of short stories. Her novels have sold a whopping 1.5 million copies worldwide. She now lives in Cambridge in the UK with her husband and children. Welcome to Book Matters, Paige, and thank you so much for chatting with me all the way from the UK. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So you've obviously just now published your new title, Someone I Used to Know. Congratulations on that. And thank I'm lucky you. enough to have read it already. But can you tell our listeners what it's all about? Okay, well, it's about a character called Leah. And her parents are foster parents. So she has spent her childhood growing up in a house where lots of troubled teenagers come and go. And when she's 15, one of these teenagers who comes into a house is a boy called George. And he's, um, he is a very troubled soul. He's had a, had a difficult time of it. The story is told between when the characters are 15 and Leah meets George and also Theo, another boy who has also has like his own troubles, even though on the surface it seems like he has everything. And when the characters are 30 and George comes back into Leah's life. So it's told in alternating timelines between then and now, every other chapter. You switch between the two timelines and, and the story unfolds in that way. Um, when I first began reading the book, I thought, oh, how am I going to kind of keep my head around this? And But it just flows so beautifully. I, I mean, I loved it. A definite five-star review from me. But how, <laughs> how hard is it for you to write a then and now setting? It was a little bit tricky, I'll admit. I When I first started writing it, I wanted to, you know, I thought I'll, I'll see if I can do the alternating chapters as I write it. And I found that I was getting 
too far into the now section and I needed the then section because there's a big kind of something that happens, you know, and you find out about it towards, I don't know, about maybe three quarters of the way through and it needed to, you know, they needed to work. And I, and I also just sort of found that I needed to live the story with the characters at the age of 15 in order to really mm-hmm. feel all the emotions and everything that happens at chapter, you know, when they're 30. So in the end, I actually put aside the now chapters and I wrote 15 right to the end and then afterwards I interwove the the chapters so you'll find that as you're reading the front section is more heavily weighted towards 15 even though you still get the alternating chapters and the back section is much more about the characters when they're 30. It flowed so nicely though too like I found myself finishing one chapter and then as soon as it flicked into the then or now it's like oh yes and that's why this was happening. Oh good oh I'm really pleased that I pulled that off. It must be difficult, though, to write that way and, you know, like you say, have that headspace to be able to do that. How long did it actually take you to write this book? I always write my books in about three months. I've I've just about September, October, November in the UK, which is autumn over here. So the end of the summer holidays, kids are back at school. Thankfully, they were back at school in the autumn term um, because that would have been a bit, you know, a bit disastrous if they weren't, if I was still homeschooling. But that's when I tend to write them. But I'm thinking about them for, you know, I've been thinking about this one for about three years before I came to write it. And I'd done all of my research. There was a lot of research about foster care systems, I'm sure you can imagine. And, you know, the the book stunning location in North Yorkshire is where where it's all set. It's a, a place called Brimham Rocks. And, you know, it's all these incredible sort of giant rocks kind of coming out of this landscape of ferns and heather. And, you know, I went up there and spent some time there at the end of August with my husband and just did a full recce kind of like wanted to work out exactly which farm would belong to Leah's. And it's an alpaca farm. So I had oh, to... Oh, that worked out perfectly then. <laughs> yes, I had to do all this research about alpacas. So I'd already done that. The late who <laughs> lives locally. It was only much later that I found out there actually is an alpaca farm right near Broom and Rocks, you know. Yes, so yep. I wrote in my acknowledgement, you know, it is not that one. You know? <laughs> it's completely fictional. I made it up. But I always like to set my books in, in real settings and real locations. So all of the towns and the pubs and, and the school, everything that I write about all exists. It's just a fictional, a fictional sort of, you know, characters who, who live within the real setting. So I've sort of, you know, had a lot of readers over the years tell me they've gone to the places I've written about. So hopefully. Yeah, yeah. I can, um, I've been to two of your places that were in one of your pictures of Lily. Is it Mount Lofty in Adelaide? Yeah, that's right. So that was beautiful up there. And I visited there because it had been in that book. That's probably one of my favourites by you. So. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> this is really um, kind of like my love letter to my hometown. You know, that I grew up in the Adelaide Hills, you know, so just to be able to write about all the places that I grew up knowing was, was so lovely. So um, you were born in Australia, weren't you, Paige? Do you know what? I was actually born in England, but my entire oh. family, going back generations, are Australian. But oh. my brother and I were both born when we were in England at that particular time. We'll so just claim you as our own as we do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know. Like my, like I say, my entire family going back generations are Aussies. So, um, so yeah. So even though I've been in England for longer than I than I lived in Australia now, <laughs> which sort of breaks my heart slightly. But yeah, no, I'm definitely I have dual passports. I have both British and, and Australian passports, so I consider myself kind of like half and half. Yes, half, half, half. We'll take that. As a longtime fan of your books, as I've said, I feel that I've always have a really soft spot for your characters, or feel like that they could be a close friend. Where do you sort of get your character inspirations from? It's almost always I mean it's really is a figment of my imagination you know like sometimes yeah. sometimes you know it was sometimes that you know I'll see a character on a film or read something in a book and think 
oh, I like the way, you know, I like this emotion that they were feeling and imagine a scenario that made them feel this. And and then, it, but honestly, like by the time within like half an hour, they've become someone different inside my head. You know, like they're not, I can't, when people say, you know, if your books are made into films, you know, who would you cast in the, these character roles? I really find that so hard. Like I've, I've rarely been able to answer that question because they look so much like, the characters inside my head you know I can't imagine them as anyone real and and they feel real to me too you know they I talk about these characters as though they are my friends you know and my real friends are kind of like you know always laugh at me because <laughs> I hope that you're not replacing them <laughs> yeah. um no I do have real friends I promise <laughs> no but they, do, they feel real to me too you know that so that's lovely to hear do you have a favorite character in any of your books don't ask me to choose between my characters. <laughs> well, I, I see that you're trying to kill off Johnny Jefferson. Oh my god, that's oh, that is my readers are making me laugh so so much with this. Yeah, I am. Um, you know, I have this this newsletter called the Hidden Page, and you know, you can sign up at pagetune.com if you'd like to. And I basically sort of sent out a message on you know a week ago with a ransom note saying buy my new book or Johnny gets it and it's hilarious like the amount of people who've been freaking out but in a really funny way you know it's like, like yes. I'm pre-ordering you know like two books I'm just in case I don't want to risk it and yeah, so it's just been a really funny joke like I definitely wouldn't kill off Johnny let me just put that out good there. I'm yeah. glad to hear and before I even know you know what chart position I get I'm going to stick out another email and just tell people don't worry tell people that you're really not going to do it just to <laughs> confirm with them confirm but also you know I mean I genuinely wasn't intending on writing a Johnny short story anytime soon but because of the result of you know all these people kind of getting on board with this you know this sort of running joke just like the efforts a lot of people have actually gone and pre-ordered the book so Um, what's um what's the standing as of at the moment well well, I I have no idea like I I know that people have been pre-ordering it I really, I don't think it's going to like be climbing up the charts. Like the charts in the summer are so, you know, so hard to crack, you know, over here in the UK, you know, I always seem to be released during really competitive weeks. So, <laughs> um, so you know, I think it's unlikely. We still get more push for it, you know, hopefully people will run out and buy it on the day if they haven't like pre-ordered. But yeah. um, either way, I'm going to write them a nice Johnny Shaw story. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing that on the hidden page. <laughs> um, your books are always known for sort of being in these faraway, beautiful locations. And as a reader, I know that you can feel like that you're transported there. And like you say, with the alpaca farm, you mean you do a lot of research into your locations. Where do you enjoy writing about the most? I love writing about Australia. My regular readers will know, you know, I've written quite a lot of books set in Australia or that have featured Australian characters. I love writing about the UK. That's yeah. where I'm living at the moment. You know, my last book, The Minute I Saw You, was like all set around Cambridge and Grantchester where I live. And, you know, it was just like all about canoeing on the River Cam and green teas and orchard gardens and pub gardens. And yes. you know, yeah. that was really, really fun to write. And this one is set in North Yorkshire. So again, it's UK set. And I, I've married, a, I married a Yorkshireman many years ago now. And, you know, I've spent sort of almost half my life kind of going to Yorkshire and sort of seeing it's just the most gorgeous landscape. And, you know, my heart is kind of very much there as well. So to be able to write about this place, you know, was, was just you know absolutely gorgeous. So, and then it basically, in terms of the overseas locations and the lovely places that we go, it kind of comes down to where I want to go on a summer <laughs> holiday. You know? Yes. So it has to fit the story, obviously, you know, like the story kind of comes first, but if it also works that this character could also be working in the South of France or in Thailand or, you know, yes. 
somewhere nice and warm yeah totally it makes it into a book for sure so my next book um it's possibly going to have like a setting in a tropical island and I'm not sure that I'm going to better get there for research but I will definitely <laughs> I know as soon as I can <laughs> yes I don't blame you if you need an assistant at all please remember to look me up <laughs> <laughs> now we talked touched on earlier that you know you were born in the UK but obviously traveled around following your dad's career how did you cope with that growing up brilliant it was so much fun you know we used to spend half the year in Australia which is where I went to school and then the other half of the year would be either in America and then in later years in England, in England, you know, just depending on where he was racing. You know, he used to do IndyCar in America and he did sports car in England and Le Mans. But like we were always really excited to go on the holiday, to go on the trip. You know, it sort of it did feel like a big holiday, even though we took schoolwork with us and we had a tutor when we were abroad and our teachers back in Australia were really supportive. And then yeah. we were desperate to come home, you know, like over, you know, the end of the six months. And I didn't even see a winter until I was about 12 years old, you know, because we used to spend the summer, you know, the summer in Australia and then the summer, you know, was the racing season over in, you know, Europe and America. So, um, so yeah, so it was a really fun childhood actually, you know, and obviously got to do quite a lot of travel and see a lot of different things. I was devastated when we left Australia permanently, when mum and dad said basically needed to be sort of based in England for dad to run his own racing team. And, and that was much more of a permanent situation. So to leave when I was about, about 13, I was absolutely devastated. So how old were you when you did start travelling around? Like were oh, you I, a baby or? Maybe, yeah. Like I, I was basically born in March in the UK and that was like the closest to, to winter I ever saw <laughs> for the yes. next 13 years. That's a huge yeah. amount of time that you're actually travelling around for then and a life that you wouldn't have known any different to and to have that all change when you're 13 is massive. Yeah, and especially I think when you're 13, you know, that's the age yes. you really start feel like making really solid friendships. And my friends and I, we wrote such tearful letters to each other for, for the rest of our teen years and it was a good three years before I got back to Australia after that. Oh, wow, that's a huge amount of time as a teenager too. Yeah, it was full on. So your first title, um, Lucy in the Sky, was first like published in two thousand and seven, and that this someone I used to know is your nineteenth title. How do you find time to write amongst life with your husband, your two children, and a new puppy? <laughs> um, well, yeah, I can't believe I've written that many books. It's crazy. So four of those were written as well as like in the same years that I was writing my my sort of adult fiction, three of them as a, a short story, uh, sorry, a young adult spin-off. And then I've also written a short story book collection. Yeah. So, so I'm kind of on, this is my 15th year of writing effectively. It was hard at first because I basically wrote Lucy in the Sky. I wrote Lucy in the Sky really quickly. Like I ended up writing in about two and a month, two and a half months of the full-time job. I just absolutely loved it. It just took on a world of its own. You know, yeah. these characters just sort of came alive in my mind, you know, and it, that was about a girl caught between England and Australia. So it was kind of like writing part of it from, from my own experiences. And and then as soon as I delivered that book, I fell pregnant. So <laughs> Don't do anything by half, do you? <laughs> No, I was kind of thinking, right, do you know what? I think we'll wait a little bit longer before we have a baby, even though we sort of like thought this is a good time. You know, after delivering the book, we were like, no, let's just wait a bit. It'd be nice to like, you know, have the launch party and stuff without being pregnant. Anyway, no, that plan went out the window. I fell pregnant. And then after that, I had to write every one of my books for about six years in baby nap times. And so it wasn't until, I mean, my sixth book was a nightmare to write because even though my son at this stage, you know, he was at nursery so three mornings a week. My daughter just refused to nap during those times that he was oh, at nursery. I might no. have had a nap of like 20 minutes. So I was a bit stressed. So ended up 
we moved to Cambridge around that time, left London, moved to Cambridge. And, you know, he was going to nursery. And so I ended up for two mornings a week. I actually had someone come in and look after her while he was at nursery. So I just went and sat in the local coffee shop and just for three hours each day, just wrote as much as I could. So and then obviously when they went to school, suddenly I felt like I had twice the amount, like three times yes. the amount of hours, you know, available to me to write. So that was when I started thinking I could do two books a year. But um, <laughs> I've, since, I've since found out that um, I need time for my brain to just, you know, kind of recalibrate and time to sort of let go of the last characters and you know start thinking of the new new characters and new stories you know so I need time to breathe so one book a year is good for me and then occasionally the occasional short story (laughs) yes definitely and for good reason too (laughs) although um as a reader I am already ready for your next book so please feel free to push that timeline ahead (laughs) now you're saying with your it was your sixth book so which one was that that you sort of struggled to write with um right while you're that was one perfect summer. And I mean, you do get so invested in your books, don't you? Because I think it was on your Instagram that I saw the video of you. Um, was it after you finished five years from now that oh. you absolutely sobbing? And I think I nearly cried just watching that. I mean, and that book ripped oh. me to shreds. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, the thing is with that one, that's about halfway through. And I was writing a scene that, yeah, and I do really feel everything I'm writing, you know, like if you're crying, guaranteed, I was probably sobbing my heart out. <laughs> <laughs> So, and my husband, he walked in as I was, um, as I was sort of typing this particularly, you know, sad scene and I just was trying to ignore him and just kind of carry on, you know, I had my headphones on, so I had my music going and, and then I kind of realised he was filming and at that point I found it really hard to, you know. <laughs> to switch back to that mode. Like I started sort of, you know, looked at him and started laughing, you know, kind of waving my hands at him, but yeah, no, that was... That was kind of, yeah, very, very sad point. He's never been around when I've finished writing the book. You know, I've always like either sent him, you know, off, off with yeah. the kids you know, so I can just have a bit of peace and quiet to just really lose myself in it. Or in the case of someone I used to know, I was down, we've got a camper van, a retired camper van down the end of the garden. And that's become my garden office. So I was down there, you know, it was like really late. It was winter. It was like the moon was out and the stars are out and I looked down there. But, um, but I thought, well, <laughs> I'll snap a photo of myself. <laughs> <laughs> which I don't normally do but I just thought oh you know what the hell you know the readers can know that you know this one's a bit of a heartbreaker too but um it's, well, it just you know, makes you seem more real to people though too because you have all those emotions and seeing that on your Instagram is it, it's great oh, not to see well, you sad yeah. but <laughs> well the thing is you know like I wouldn't normally post anything I never used to you know so post anything but I do remember my husband he's always been quite anti me posting anything too personal as well but um you know, I do remember him saying, you know what, you should put that video live because your readers should see how much your books mean to you. And so that's, you know, that's why that one ended up going live. And, you know, I've I've kind of like let them see that side of me since. So <laughs> yeah, what is it, warts and all you've let us see? <laughs> yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, yeah. I, I, I've got, I remember someone saying, you know, recently to me, because she's another author and just saying, you know, how much she used to, you know, so sit, she'll sort of sit there typing away and then she's kind of like, you know, laughing to herself, oh, now I'm going to make them cry. And, and you know, <laughs> and I'm just like, I, I just could never do that. You know, none, nothing, every everything I write is just, that is kind of how the characters realistically sort of feel like they're progressing, you know, it's sort of, yes. I, you know, I'm just inside their heads just sort of feeling what they're feeling and we've just the launched. The new- all natural sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we've just launched yeah. new for my books actually which is feel it all you know sort of hashtag feel it all and that's the thing the message you know I kind of get across to new readers I don't write light and fluffy kind of romance or rom-com you know some you know they're kind of much more emotional so if you're looking for something really really light and fluffy you know? yes 
maybe not these books yeah maybe not these books but if you want kind of like a bit more of an emotional love story then um then yeah hopefully they're still very much easy sort of reads you know like I'm not I think that's the thing about writing them quite quickly I'm not sort of thinking about every single sentence as I write it very much just writing from the first person so sort of seeing what my character's seeing and obviously visited a lot of these locations so being there and and sort of experiencing what she's what she's experiencing so hopefully you'll feel like that too if you read one of my books I'm sure that some of our readers will I'm sorry with some of our listeners so you were working at Heat Magazine for eight years as a reviews editor, but did you always want to be a writer? Yes, I've always, ever since I was little, I'm sorry, if you can hear tip-tip-tapping, my dog's just come back in from a walk. <laughs> you can hear a little pause, yes. tip-tapping all over the, across the living room floor. Um, yes, ever since I was a little girl, you know, I've always like. I've always written stories and poems and songs and you know, the first job I ever wanted to, to be was an author. You know, that was the very first thing, you know. So in my teenage years, I kind of went through, through a phase of thinking it'd be really fun to go and work for a magazine. Yeah. And so I thought, right, what I'll do is I'll go and work for a magazine and then when I have a baby, I'll leave and become a full-time author. <laughs> and so well, it was pretty that. much what you've done, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it is what I've done. But, I mean, there were years there when I was just like, this is never going to happen. You know, I'm, this is going to be like my biggest regret if I never managed to write this book had the idea for Lucy in the Sky for a while well before I started writing it and actually only really wrote it when I got a book deal for it which was incredibly lucky you know so I was kind of living in fear of of not getting the book written and published and so when it happened it was like one of the happiest times of my life you know just being able to sit there and write the book that I've been thinking about for so long and and just knew that it would find an audience. How did you go from working at Heat to then getting a book deal you know did you have to approach many publishers or I had the idea for Lucy about this girl who gets on a flight to Australia and just before takeoff gets this message from her boyfriend's phone saying I've slept with your boyfriend four times this month and then she has to switch off her phone doesn't know whether or not he's cheating on her and go you know has to sort of go on this 24-hour flight to Australia and when she's there she meets this hot sort of young surfer with no prospects and, and um, you know, has this attraction to him, but and all the time doesn't really know whether or not her boyfriend back home is, you know, sort of being faithful or not. You know, he's he's told her a pretty good story. And so, it's, you know, and then she has to come back to the UK. So she's very much sort of torn between the two countries and, and these two men. Anyway, I had this idea through being reviews editor at Heat, I'd made a couple of friends uh, who were publishers, like publicists, you know, who worked at, you know, worked at publishers, obviously would meet lots and lots of publicists, but two in particular had become friends. And I'd gone for lunch with him and he, and he said to me, you should write a book club, you know, you'd get a book deal working at Heat. And, and I said, well, I do have an idea. And he was like, tell me, you know, and I could sort of see him, God, here we go. Um, yeah. but <laughs> I did tell him the idea and he was like, I love it. I'm going to go back and tell, tell my publisher. And five minutes after I got back to the office, I had an email from her, um, Suzanne Davano from Simon and Schuster, saying, Nigel's just told me your idea. You know, I love the sound of this. Can we meet for breakfast? And so a week later, we met for breakfast. In that time, I'd written a 5,000-word synopsis. I'd written the first three chapters, which, considering I'd taken months to write a page, you know, I actually yeah. wrote chapters. And my brother had come up with the with the title Lucy in the Sky, and so we met for breakfast. And she just said, you know, and you know, she loved the idea. What you know, said, have you written anything? And so I, you know, handed over my chapters. And two days later, she offered me a two book deal. And, oh my um, goodness! Yeah, it was just so, I was so lucky. I mean, obviously, a big part of that was because I worked at Heat Magazine, which was biggest magazines in the world at the time. You know, it was selling like six hundred thousand copies, and you know, really helped kind of. And also, she knew that I was a writer, so she knew. Yes. That I, be able to sort of pull it off Nigel then said to me he said I tell her you can write it <laughs> Nigel said, I tell her you can write it by Christmas and have it out in April I'd never written a book Christmas was three and a half months away and you know had a full-time job 
And yeah. but I did. I said, and I, and she said, well, we wouldn't normally work to such tight deadlines, but let's do it. And but it really did. The momentum just carried through. You know, like, and I ended up writing it in two and a half months. I said like I, I delivered like a month early, and because I was just so so excited, you know, that this was actually going to happen. And it really did. You know, just the momentum, like I say, just carried through. I think the publisher, everyone, kind of got behind it. They were all just really invested. You know, started selling my foreign rights to other publishers it was really really exciting and yeah it was one of the happiest times of my life three kids so yes <laughs> yeah, and you know I have delivered a book a book a year if not two books a year ever since and did you um do any like writing courses or anything like that before you did this or just... no, no no yeah no I, I did like a creative writing course when I was trying to get work experience in magazines like a few years prior to that which I just found really helpful it was just felt like I was doing something proactive, you know, behind the scenes when, when I was just hoping to, to be able to get a job. But that was creative writing, just sort of generally about views and things. But um, yeah, no, at the end of the day, you know, I just had this idea for this book. And when I finally sort of sat down to write it with the freedom of knowing that it was going to get published, these characters really did just sort of take on lives of their own and made friends with other people and just yeah, the, story. the story all came together. And how <laughs> yes. lucky are we that it did? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any tips for any aspiring writers that are listening to our podcast I think the most important thing is just to feel what you're writing you know and write for yourself imagine that no one else is going to read it and I really had to do that because that was you know my most nerve-wracking point was when the book was written and it was suddenly like oh my god people are going to read this and it's rubbish you know <laughs> I just yeah. had so, many, so much self-doubt and I think so I think you know and that was my problem with even writing more than the first page, it was the self-doubt. It was reading it back and, and thinking, oh, that's rubbish. No, I'm a terrible writer. I can't do this. So I think you know, the best thing that you can possibly do is not read it. Just write because you can't edit nothing. You know, you you can get to the end of the book and you can do as much editing on, on it as you like. And the thing is, as you write, you get better. And once you reach the end of the book, got such a clear idea of the characters and you can really understand, you know, where they're coming from. So you can edit the beginning and, and make it as good as it can possibly be. But the point is you just need to get to the end. And so, you know, I think that's the thing. And just and write when you're feeling it, you know, write for yourself, write what you love, live in this little, you know, kind of movie inside your head and just really enjoy it. And guaranteed, I've found time and time again, so long as I'm enjoying it, then there'll be readers who enjoy it. Obviously, there are going to be people who don't enjoy it too. But, you know, on the whole, like most of my readers connect with the stories that I write because I've connected to them and I, and I yeah. really think that's so important. I think that's a really good um, point that, you know, you can't edit enough. You haven't written anything. Then I love that. That's a great statement, really. Uh, <laughs> when you are not writing, do you ever get time to read yourself? And can you recommend any recent books and authors that you've read? Yeah. To, well, I mean, to start with, you know, when I was writing, I didn't read anything. Like I, I, the first book I read after my son was born was Twilight because it wasn't romance as such. Obviously it is romance, but it's just told in a fantasy setting. And I got completely swept away in that genre, you know, read so much kind of like fantasy and, you know, I love stories still. But yeah, I, for a while I avoided contemporary romance just because I thought I'd compare myself too much. And so it took a few years before I felt confident enough to then be able to read other people. And since yeah. then, I've read lots of contemporary romance. You know, that's my favourite genre. Love Sally Thorne. You know, she's an Australian writer. She wrote The Hating Game. You know, it was a really fun book. And she's yes. got a new one called Second First Impressions, which is brilliant. I really like Christina Lauren. You know, I love Colleen Hoover. A book I've just read recently was The Simple Wild by K.A. Tucker. I think okay. that's a similar kind of style to mine in the sense that 
you know, it's quite sort of emotional, it's sort of love story, you know, it's set in, in the Alaskan wilderness, it's just amazing. But, you know, the, these two characters are kind of enemies at first, which is always a really fun trope. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I'd start with any of those. I think I'm, I think you'd, you'd enjoy. Now, if our listeners are wanting to connect with you, obviously, you know, Instagram is really well updated and gives us a great insight to your world. But is there another way that readers can connect with you and find out more information about you and things? Sure. Um, well, if you go to pagetune.com, that is my website, and it has a sign-up form for the Hidden Page, which is this newsletter that I send out occasionally to readers. So that's, you know, like a really good sort of first stop. But I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, and I'm on Instagram, and my, my handle is at author. And yeah, I love hearing from my readers. And I will, you know, I, if I ha- if I don't respond to you, it's because for some reason I haven't seen your message and it's very likely that I won't see your message. So I write back to every single message that I read. So, so yeah, it's just lovely hearing from new readers and, and old readers. It's just nice touching base of fans. And we're so lucky these days that we've got this kind of immediate you know, social media, like I can hear from readers immediately, you know, as to what they yes. thought of the book, um, you know, anything they want to kind of say, you know, so always welcome that feedback. Yeah, well, I know personally I was reading um, pictures of Lily and I was away for a holiday on the Great Ocean Road and I snapped a photo of it and um, I tagged you in that photo. And I remember when you responded and I had this huge sort of fangirl moment. I'm like, oh, my God, and we are so lucky that we can connect with our authors and things. So thank you for that. And I'm sure that our listeners will appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I love it when people send me pictures of the places, you know, if they've been to other locations where I've said the book. So, yeah, Yeah. always makes me so happy. Pages books are all available from our library through print, audiobook, playaway, large print and e-audiobook. So you can hop onto our catalogue and reserve them now. And we just want to say thank you so much, Paige, for joining me on Book Matters today. Oh, thank you so much, Peter. It's been so nice to chat to you. And um, nice to maybe we'll speak again next year. <laughs> yes, that sounds good. Hopefully we can see you in Melbourne sometime soon. <laughs> oh, <God>, yes. <laughs> Please, yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. For more details on the books mentioned in this podcast, as well as information from the library, head to www.cclc.vic.gov.au or visit our new Facebook group, In a Nook with a Book, where you can let us know what you've been reading. Until next time, this has been Janine, and you've been listening to Book Matters, a CCLC podcast for people who like to read, made by people who love reading. Goodbye. Goodbye.